Welcome into the latest installment of the Dwight and Cirque Talk Black and Gold podcast. We are recording this on a lovely Wednesday evening, and it is the 22nd of April. Steve Cirque, Dwight Burgess, and the guest de la creme with us tonight, and that is one Craig Murs, the original beat writer for the Black and Gold with the Columbus Dispatches here as well. And gentlemen, good evening, and uh, I hope this finds each of you in hunker-down mode doing well these days. I'm doing fine, Dwight and Steve. It's good to see you, Craig, on my computer screen safely more than six yeah. feet away. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually six feet away from my own computer as well. So, yeah, we've got that safe yeah. distancing going. Craig, take us back to the beginning. You were covering the Columbus Chill have a book that you wrote with Dave Pates, and we can certainly talk about that as well. But uh, the early days, from your perspective, of Major League Soccer and the crew in Columbus. Yeah, it's covering the, uh, the Chill and the Columbus Clippers. And actually covered the Clippers in 94 and 95. And at the end of that run there, there was some talk about, you know, this team starting up next year, the soccer team. I followed it a little bit, but I was so engrossed in the Clippers. Back in those days, the, the golden days of newspaper where riders actually traveled and covered games on the road. On the train? So, uh, yeah, I was on the train. Yeah, that was it. Pretty much a train. Bicycle meet, sometimes as well. Did you meet but, Jeter? Uh, oh, yeah, I, absolutely. We, I drove him to a ballpark a few times. Uh, him and Mariano Rivera and, and his cousin as well. And, yeah, I took Derek to the ballpark. I remember specifically going out early one day from Norfolk to the ball, from the hotel there to the ballpark, the Tidewater Tides. And I'm driving along, I'm thinking, you know, if, if I get in an accident with Derek Jeter in this car, George Steinbrenner is going to call John F. Wolf, publisher of the Dispatch, and I'm going to be out of a job. So it was a lot of pressure, but I handled it. I was able to take Derek there a few times, and it was, got to know him a little bit over the years. And I still have the scorebook. His first game in Columbus, August 1st, 1994, when he hit the uh, – actually, it was 1995, excuse me – he hit a double right center field, of course, the way he always did in the major league. So, yeah, I, I knew Derek Jeter. So, did I got to ask. You, did he give Jeter? you a gift basket <laughs> for driving him? Yes. Did he? No. Yes, did you get a gift basket? <laughs> no, no. I, I, you know, fine. In those days, he was just still like a, a young kid. I don't know if he was in a gift baskets back then. I think a hearty Fair thank enough. you. Other than that, you know. That's strictly our relationship with strictly driver chauffeur at that point. <laughs> strictly right. platonic. <laughs> so Jeter, Steven Tyler. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, we, have you guys told that story yet about Steven oh, Tyler? We tell it every chance oh, yeah, we get. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, no Steven Tyler, no Derek Jeter. Just name dropping here, of course, obviously. But uh, yeah. yeah, it was a good group. So yeah, you know, I was covering That's the Clippers it. then. And at the, at the end of 95, again, you know, this soccer team was starting up in Columbus. And I remember uh, I, was, I was pretty happy. I was happy doing what I was doing, covering the Clippers and the Chill, the way it was one season would end, the other one would begin. Yeah. And uh, I think it was Terry Smith maybe was up to broadcast for the Clippers, asked me one day, well, what about this soccer team coming to town? Who's going to be covering? I go, I don't know, but it's not going to be me. That's all I knew. <laughs> Now, you knew that because you didn't think they would assign it to you, or you knew that because you yeah. wanted no part of it? Yes. <laughs> uh, 
How's that for an answer? <laughs> so, Actually, probably the best answer you could give. Yes, well, absolutely. No, I mean, I, I, I was not a soccer aficionado growing up. I remember watching on Channel 34, WOSU in Columbus, the uh, soccer made in Germany. I love those games, those matches. They used to show them on Saturday nights. And so I, that's about the extent of it that I knew about soccer. I watched the World Cups. I remember watching those matches. And I, w- I wish it was grown in the U.S. I remember listening to Seamus McMallon and, and his Seamus and how he was just so into it. And I was like, gee, you know what? I just wish people in America were like him with Seamus and how much he loved the sport. And so, yeah, I didn't think the way I was covering the chill and the way I was covering the Clippers, that it, I, that wasn't in my playbook to be covering the crew. When, so when you grew up, what, so were you uh, baseball and hockey, and or, or what, what were your sporting interests growing up? Uh, yeah, hockey. I loved usually about about ten years old. I got into hockey, so that was it. Um, baseball, obviously, the the Indians. Ray Fossey was my man, the catcher. Damn you, Pete Rose, for ruining his career. <laughs> yeah, hitting him, hitting him in a nineteen seventy All Star game. Um, Take no so, prisoners. Yeah, so you know, it was baseball, it was football. I loved the AFL back in those days. It, it, to watch the AFL, you had to be a rebel, you know, because you had the the state established NFL. So I loved the, the AFL and the and the Wild West attitude that they had. And then again, you know, hockey was a big thing for me. I liked hockey because nobody else was watching it, nobody else was covering it. So that's why I got into uh, hockey that way. So how how did you? How were you able to consume your hockey? I mean, I imagine it probably wasn't the easiest thing to follow. Peter Puck. In Ohio. Peter Puck. I'm not cussing. Peter, if you remember the old NBC and CBS game of the week, they had the little puck on TV and they had uh-huh. games on occasionally. But, but really, back in those days, it was radio. And being in Columbus, I'd get the WBZ out of Boston. Bob Wilson would do the games. The KMOX, St. Louis, Dan Kelly. Um, uh, WSB out of Atlanta when it, when the uh, Flames were down there. Listen to Marv Albert out of New York on WNBC do the Knicks and Rangers games. Uh, Detroit Station, listen to them do them. Uh, Cincinnati. So, yeah, Philadelphia. KDKA was Pittsburgh. W, uh, ACAU, I believe, was Philadelphia. The Tasty Cakes. Gene Earl and Don Hart doing those games. So, yeah, that's how I loved hockey, just the excitement of it, listening to it on the radio. So then, so then covering the chill then must have been kind of a, a dream beat for you in terms of Columbus. You know. Yeah, because I grew up again in Columbus the whole time, and I saw the – I never got to see the Checkers, who were the uh, International Hockey League team from 66 through 670, and they left. And then the Columbus Golden Seals, owned by Charlie Finley, who owned the Oakland A's, and they had the white skates the one season, and the – and the green and gold uniforms, they lasted a few years. Then the Columbus Owls. That was pretty cool. And that's what I did at night. Obviously, back in those days when you had three channels on TV and we had one TV in the house, <laughs> what else are you going to do? So so then getting the, the chill job had to be a, you know, the chill beat had to be a pretty good uh, pretty good get for you in terms of, you know, being in Columbus and, and working your way into the newspaper business to get that beat. Yeah. Yeah, you know, growing up in Columbus, I never got to see the Checkers play the first pro hockey team from 66 to 70 in the IHL, followed by the Golden Seals and Charlie Finley, who owned the Oakland A's, and they had the, the white skates and everything. Then the Columbus Isles left in 77 uh, when I was a senior in high school, and I was thinking about journalism at the time, and I just thought that I thought the media didn't support the hockey team in Columbus, doggone it. They let the hockey team go. 
you know, everybody blames the media. So I, I, I was like, you know, someday, if I have an opportunity, I'm going to do the best I can. If I get a chance to cover a hockey team, I'm going to give it a fair shot and, and you know, promote it as much as I not promote the team itself, but promote the fact that there is a hockey team in Columbus by the way I write stories and make sure my stories are, uh, you know, written pretty well and I get some front-page coverage once in a while. What was the internal reception as you tried to do your job, uh, be it with the chill? You talked a little bit about the couple of years uh, with the Clippers as well. I would imagine the baseball being more mainstream. We all know it's an Ohio State town, but what was it for you like for you to actually go to work, to have access to these guys, to get your stories printed and so forth? Yeah, it was great. I mean, you know, nobody did, I probably got the job by default because nobody knew hockey at the time. Uh, when the chill came in in 1991, and I actually read a blurb in the hockey news about the possible franchise coming to Columbus, and I followed up on it, and they said, hey, run with it. You know, you're the guy that knows hockey. So I was still working on the news side at times. So actually for the first two, maybe three years of the chill, I was working for the Metro, which I was covering school board meetings on one night and covering a hockey game the next, things like that. And so I had two editors, two bosses, really. It was a very unique situation. They let me go with it, and I appreciate that. Um, you know, like the first year of the chill, I took vacation time to go on the road with them to cover games. So, uh, you know, it just grew on from there. So it was a lot of fun, the hockey players, you know. It, it was a different time, a different era. Uh, a lot of fighting back in those days. A lot, of more, a lot more craziness than there is nowadays, obviously. So did you, so did you always want to be a sports writer? Well, I thought really uh, my major at Otterbein was uh, public relations, and I thought that's where the money would be. So I figured I'd do PR, earn some money there, and then go maybe journal- work for a, uh, a pro team at some point. I, journalism was maybe a, the second choice for me, but making money was the first choice. And obviously I went into journalism, and so I, I didn't do either one of those. I didn't become a PR person. I didn't make any money. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, so, you, you, so you've got your, your – you know, kind of a dream job covering hockey. You're doing the Clippers. You're not getting gift baskets for driving Derek Jeter around. <laughs> and now there's this job that you said you would never have. How did you end up uh, actually getting that job? Uh, they told me I was doing it, basically. And uh, so, okay, that's fine. And uh, the mystery out it, was a, of it. It, was a, it was a challenge. I mean, it was a new challenge for me, and I enjoyed it. Um, and one of the big reasons was uh, initially, honestly, I looked at the cities and MLS. You see Los Angeles. Tampa, Denver, um, New York City, Boston. I was with the Clippers. I was going to Pawtucket, Syracuse, Rochester. Not that they're not great cities, but this was a lot more fun and a lot more, uh, a lot more major league. I guess you know that's the big thing. You're in the major leagues now. Uh, a lot better than uh, driving Derek Jeter around Tidewater. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. To have Dwight drive me around was much better. I didn't have to drive anybody around anymore. I'm sure, I'm I'm sure I was Dwight's Derek Jeter. Yeah, yeah, right. Very much so. Did you get my gift baskets? Jeter has them. Okay, okay, that's where they went. Harden kind of had a, a crash course in uh, you know getting up to speed with with yeah. how, how did you prepare for that first season and and you know kind of throw yourself into it. Well, yeah, that, at that time, it wasn't. You really just couldn't go on and Google soccer. Was Google even around then? You could yeah. have asked Jeeves. Yeah, that's Jeeves or Jeeves. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, 
Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously going to training camp and spring training, if you want to call it that, with the team early on, helped me learn the sport and just sitting around, listen to people, listen to people like Dwight and, you know, everybody else that knows soccer. And uh, I remember just going on the road trips with the team and sitting. Was there anything from your your time, you know, doing the chill or the Clippers, you know, your your sports writing experience? You know, that's where you kind of got your feet wet in the sports writing world. That kind of helped you, that translated to soccer, or was soccer just totally different? It is a beat writer in in terms of how it worked for you. No, I I think the big thing is you you had to be upfront with with players, athletes, people, anybody you interview and be honest with them. I was just on the phone with Terry Raskowski before this um, Skype, uh, the first chill coach. And I talked to him in 20 years. And at the end of our conversation, our hour long conversation, he says, you know what? I, I appreciate you being honest and upfront in what you were doing. I didn't always agree with you, but I always knew where you stood. And that's the important, uh, whether you're covering soccer, hockey, politics, school boards, like I mentioned earlier, you know, you just got to be fair to them. Uh, you know, and sometimes it's not easy. <laughs> I had my run-ins with Jeff Cunningham, or I should say Jeff Cunningham had his run-ins with me over the years. So I'm sure we'll get later episodes. We can, we can talk about some of the things that he and Jeff and I went through. But, uh, yeah, so I think that was a big thing. That, that's translated from hockey to soccer. And I had heard, you know, you heard the stories about all the soccer players are so crazy. They're nuts. They're and that was a lot of it was the old days back in the English soccer and all that. That all these guys are just crazy people. Major League Soccer was a bunch of kids out in their early 20s, just out of college. The Mike Clark's of the world, the Brian Mays and all. Um, but I'm sure you had some of your own adventures um, in those early days. Think back to old Foxborough Stadium. Sometimes yeah. in that auxiliary little booth. Yeah, you're out out in that way, or uh, Giant Stadium when we were in the end zone uh, before their umpteenth uh, renovations. There, we were, I was in the end zone for that at some point. Just trying to leave Foxborough Stadium, had a little twirly thing. You tried to get out of the stadium and getting locked in there a few times. Um, yeah, that was fun. It was those are the fun days. Well, and it's kind of a. I mean, obviously for the Blue Jackets, you know, people still travel, but I mean, more and more newspapers. You know, that's just not a thing, you know, where, where people no. are traveling with, with, with their teams. So, um, I mean, was that helpful to you, especially as someone just getting started in soccer, being able to go on the road with guys so you kind of had more downtime with them, you know, maybe compared to, to at home, you know, just to get them to know them on a little more personal level and to kind of have those off-the-record side combos? Yeah, I mean, I used the keyword there, personal and professional. Like you said, I was just learning the sport a bit. So to be able to go to the practices when they're on the road, the more time you spend to practice, the more you learn about things, you, things you can pick up that maybe you, you can't pick up being you know in the sky trying to watch a game down below um, when the game's going on. So, yeah, personally, I get to know the players better. They get to know me. And professionally, I get to know the sport even better. Hanging out with Lamar on, on the sidelines there as the, the world's uh, richest ball boy in Dallas when the team was practicing there. Well, that was the thing about the early days of MLS, too, is while it was professional, there, there weren't a great many people associated with the teams in the league that really knew all they needed to know about stadium management and access and those kinds of things. And so we got to go places and, and be parts of, of things that you certainly wouldn't be able to do these days whether it was spending time in Florida, you know, during preseason and just hanging out in a hotel room and going out to practice and um, having that access to the players and a bunch of players, these young guys who really didn't know anything because it wasn't like the college guys had any media following them. 
you know, at IU and so forth. It was really, a, it really was a different time, even if we weren't traveling on trains. Yeah, and the, you know, and, and going back to the, the training facility at Obets when it opened in '97. I mean, a lot of times to practice those first three or four years, I'd, I'd be the only guy out there from the media, and I would just go into the locker room. They said come into the locker room, and I would go. I I let them have the, the changing area, but where the training facility was, I could be inside the locker room at Obets and talk to them, and I'd go into Fitzy's office and talk to him or Greg Andrews and talk to them, and then about. 2004, 2005, uh, suddenly you didn't have access to the players as much. No, that, that's that been a huge change. And I've said to folks when they ask me after 24 years, you know, what are some of the changes? And, and the number one thing I list is is the access to the players, particularly in a market like Columbus, where every Thursday under Fitzy and it continued under Greg and I think even Robert, where the team would always practice in the stadium on Thursday mornings. Yep. And you get a couple hundred people showing up. Um, and you just don't have that kind of relationship between fan and player that you once did. I realize you could probably get away with more in Columbus than in certain markets, but you know I think that's been a change. I don't think it's been for the positive. Yeah, I mean, I I enjoyed the one-on-one with the players after practice where he had time with them, and he didn't have the uh, the media folks shepherding them here or there. Oh, they got two minutes, they got three minutes. You know, a lot of times the players like to talk, and I'm willing to listen to them. Favorite venue in '96? Thinking about RFK and the Rats and the Feral Cats. <laughs> uh, the old yeah, the Fox. Yeah, the I love. Shine band performing after the game, but if you stood at the top of the stadium where I would broadcast from, you could look into the Yankees spring training facility, yeah. and Sting was doing his own show there. Well, you can remember the the sombrero with the crown on the field, where you could stand on one. Because that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's yes. how significant the crown is. Yes. If you were on was. one side of the field, you could not see the other. You could not see Billy Thompson on the other side of the field, and the ball was his role. Um, yeah, you know, Foxborough. By the end of the year, when they played their last regular season game there uh, in '96 to make the playoffs, the field was chewed chewed up by them. They had grass in there then, obviously, and it was just a mess. Um, the ball bouncing around, and that's why Lawless couldn't make the play, and the crew scored. So you get off to this big, bright start, Columbus Crew does, um, and they're doing pretty well. And then they get into the middle of May and really hit the skids, and that's when things turn. And there were, what, six consecutive games without a victory. And then when they finally did get a couple of wins, they were the shootout variety, so not regulation victories. And ultimately it would result in a change of coach that was a change of culture and a change of direction. And I think probably in that time with so many youthful players – Having a guy who had come out of the college game, Tom Fitzgerald, um, I think it was a better fit relationship-wise. Whereas Timo was was older, he had been working, you know, at a national team level and in, in some of the things that he had done. But how did you see that transition? Well, let me go through the, the story. The story I don't think I've told you guys before. Um, crew was playing Fourth of July in Tampa, if you remember, Dwight, 1996. And I think it was the day before I was going out for a run and Jamie Roots wanted to run with me. We ran together and we were running along the causeway or something, wherever we were staying. And he was asking me about the team and he was asking me, well, what, what we're struggling. What, what should I do? You know, he was very young. He wasn't a couple, yeah. I, I was older than him. I mean, I was yeah. probably 10 years older than him. And so he was very young and, you know, um, he said, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of making a change in coaching. I, I don't know, you know, do I give, Timo time 
what should we, you know, what, what are your thoughts on this? You've been around. He thought, he thought I was an expert on something. I don't know what it was, but, uh, <laughs> so, so we were running along there and I, I just remember to this day, I said, you know, you, maybe you give him more time, but at some point you're going to have to make a decision. I said to me, the cutoff point is 10 games left in the season. If you go past 10 games, you're not going to, the change you make is not going to make a difference. It's going to be too late. So if you don't make a change before there's 10 games left in the season, you might as well just keep them for the rest of the season. And when did Timo get, how many games were left in the season when Timo got fired? <laughs> the number 10. 10. I have. 10. It was almost exactly the month. It was like August 2nd. This was like July 3rd. It was August 2nd. And what happened? Brad Friedel came in. They won nine out of 10 games. They made the playoffs by a, what, a point at the end of the season. And I always go back and say, you know, did, did I get Timo fired? Did I lay the groundwork for Jamie firing him with 10 games left? I've, I've always thought that. And I think maybe that had something to do with it. He knew that the back of his head, he had heard me say, if you get inside 10 games and you'd want to make a change, it could be, it's going to be too late for you. You're not going to make the playoffs. Craig, I, I think you're just framing this negatively. Don't think of it as, did you get Timo fired? Think of it as, did you propel the crew into the playoffs? That's it. That's exactly what, yeah. Yeah, yeah. like fr- frame it positively. Oh. You'll, you'll feel happier about this memory. Oh, all these years, all the therapy and all that, I've gone through just blaming myself for, for Timo getting fired. And now, and you come on, I'm going to send you a gift basket. <laughs> Just get it to me, and I'll forward it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Regifted. Well, and uh, intentional or not, you also helped create one of the greatest headlines in newspaper history. Uh, for those who were not around or familiar, there was a second newspaper uh, in that era in Columbus, and it was cleverly called The Other Paper. Um, and... Prior to Timo's firing, when things were really going south very quickly, uh, one day the the headline in that paper is, Hey, Timo, T-I-M-O, what's wrong with your Timo, T-E-A-M-O? And uh, I'll always remember that one. Yeah. Timo, what's wrong with your Timo? <laughs> that was great. That was so good, I wish I'd done it. So, so what was it like for you, Craig? And I, did, I, I will say, I remember, remember the day that Timo got fired. And you could always remember that the, they're going to put the posters out, hand out the fans, probably for fan appreciation night or something. And so you can't have Timo in the picture. So... I went to, I'm going to go to high stadium that morning where the, you know, they were practicing then and they were taking a team photo and it's like, where's Timo? Oh, he, he, he's been let go. So I think maybe that was the other reason why they, they didn't want it's Timo just, in the team picture. It's just a confluence left. of events. Yeah. yeah your advice, team picture day yep. and a six and 16 record all just combined yep. together. Yep. It was a confluence of parts that is now a confluence part. Nice. So, so, so after you got Timo fired, how, how what, was it, what was it like? What was it like watching them go on this run? You know, to win nine out of ten with Brad Friedel in the fold. Um, yeah. You know, this great thing that you did to get them into the playoffs. 
It, it was amazing. It was really kind of unbelievable that uh, you kept waiting for it to end. You know, yeah, they can win a few games. Kids can one guy really make a difference. I think he made 75, 80 percent of the difference on the field. I think, but uh, you know, with Fitz coming in, I think there was just a new life, a, a breath of fresh air, a positive attitude that he had, and you know, some players got healthy. The team started to gel. I mean, remember, you're still young. It's a young league, a young team. And they started to gel. They gained a lot of confidence. And, uh, you know, then you get out the last game of the regular season, having to win at New England to make the playoffs. And uh, it's a pretty remarkable run for them. Dwight and Cirque talking black and gold. And as you can tell, we're having a lot of fun with Craig Merce, who was the original beat writer for the club. And we're going to look forward to having Craig with us more as uh, the show continues to grow. Uh, so you have the Timo firing, you have the addition of Friedel and the late season run. Uh, but there are other things happening um, in this organization. What were some of the signs to you in those early days, Craig, that you know maybe this new upstart league really does have a shot catching on? Or, or were there any signs to you of that? Well, I think obviously the attendance is one thing. And they had the great crowds. I think the last regular season game with 31,000 people at the, at the shoe. Um, that was that was something else. I mean, that was pretty remarkable. And you you thought they could sustain it over the year, the next year, I mean. And, uh, you know, so they were trying to build off of that momentum. And obviously making the playoffs made a big difference for them. People start paying attention, even though, again, you're in the September, October, you're at high in the football season at, in Columbus. But people were talking about the crew, and that was very important for them to make the playoffs, to make that run. If they, like you said, 6-16 six and 16 record, they slinked off and had lost eight out of the last ten games, who knows how the, the city would have reacted over the years to them. And you think about some of the little parts. You were covering the team on a daily basis, so the Dispatch, the main newspaper in Columbus, had that ongoing coverage. The games were predominantly on radio. They were on you know, 1460, the fan. There was no FM sports channel at the time. That's the home of the Buckeyes. So even though Ohio State would overshadow pretty much everything else, like the crew and the Clippers, Nonetheless, being in there just running the promos um, and so forth kept it, um, I, I think, in, in the, the minds of folks. And, and playing at the shoot had its own thing. Remember, you used to get a great influx of uh, college students that would come to the games because yeah. it was so easy to access and tickets weren't particularly expensive. Yeah, and I think going back to the WBNS, to be on that station, uh, that, that was big time. You know, you're sharing the spotlight or – part of the spotlight with the high state athletics and so that was a big deal to be on there with them and that was a big coup for the, the crew of the first season well and i want to i want to circle back i'm going to plug your book because i think it kind of uh ties in here so for those who don't know craig co-authored a book about the columbus chill called chill factor um and, and i was fortunate enough to kind of be a guinea pig as him and dave pateson were working on it um and, and you got to read some of it while the, while they were working on it. And I think it was kind of interesting to me as someone who did not grow up in Columbus. And I think I only went to one chill game because they were pretty much on the way out by the time I was getting settled in Columbus. But I thought it was a, a fascinating read. And I, I recommend it to anyone who's a sports fan in, in Columbus for this reason, because I thought it was a really, you know, kind of a fascinating look at Columbus's evolution from being like all Ohio State all the time and how the chill kind of broke through and kind of became, uh, you know, a, a team that garnered some of the spotlight 
and kind of pave the way, you know, for, for the crew to come along and the Blue Jackets to come along. And, and, uh, and maybe if you just maybe a high level of what people might be able to read in that book, um, you know, your thoughts yeah. on that evolution. Well, thanks for the compliments, first of all. And, um, yeah, uh, one of the big things that happened early on when the Chill came to town, a minor league hockey team, was uh, the need for a facility in Columbus, a major league facility arena in Columbus. So there was a task force formed in 1992-93, some of the business leaders in Columbus, Ohio. And that group got together and started seriously looking at you know, whether the NHL was viable for Columbus. How does that connect to the crew and Major League Soccer? Well, by 94, when Major League Soccer, which wasn't named Major League Soccer at the time, was thinking about forming a professional Division One level team in the United States, Columbus was ready because all the business leaders outside of a high state were all together talking about an arena. So they were able to form real quick and get a task force going. And Columbus had the most season ticket deposits of any city. That's why they got a franchise. So if you look at what the Chill did in terms of the arena, and having all the civic leaders, business leaders, community leaders coalesce. Yeah, and, and again, for for just Columbus sports fans in general, I, I really recommend that that book. Again, it's Chill Factor by Craig Merson and David Pateson. And and I say this as someone who, like I said, I only went to like one chill game. I didn't grow up with the chill. I really didn't know anything about the team. But I, I just thought it was a really interesting look at kind of the evolution of the, the Columbus sports market that – led up to, you know, the birth of the crew and then, you know, shortly thereafter, the, the Blue Jackets. Um, so, yeah, thanks for kind of recapping that a little bit because yeah. I, I think that's kind of an interesting evolution from all Ohio State all the time to the Columbus we have now where, you know, it's much more diverse in its sports landscape. And, and, and the and seats Dwight, were kind of playing it back then. Yeah. And Dwight just mentioned, you know, what else was going on there during that run to the playoffs in 96 and how, what was that like? We have to remember that's also at that time, there was a, uh, they're talking about building a downtown arena and a downtown soccer stadium. And that was on the ballot in 90, May of 97. So it was imperative that the crew have a good first season and draw fans because why would you build a soccer stadium for somebody that's drawing 5,000 people? So you know, aside from what they were doing on the field, off the field, the crew was trying to ingrain themselves in the business community the civic community, and also trying to push a ballot, put a ballot issue on for the next season to get a soccer stadium built. Did it work? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, do we have a yeah? Do we have a downtown arena and do we have a downtown stadium coming up? And it took you know, it took a few years, but the the, the dream is coming true. It's just uh, not the way anybody envisioned back in 1996-97. So no, it didn't work. As we like to say, it was a Apollo 13 type. It was a successful failure. Well, yeah, we really appreciate you uh, you coming on, Craig. And, and before we let Craig go, I'm on a, I just kind of want to circle back. You know, he talked about how when he was starting out, he was kind of looking to others. You know, whether it was you know on the soccer beat. And I would say that the, the same is true for me regarding him. Because when I first started in 1998, no idea what I was doing. And so one of the first things I did was like, I'm going to watch the guy from the Columbus Dispatch. He must know what he's doing. I mean, he he works for the newspaper, you know. So even, even before I knew Craig, even before I actually knew Craig, I, just, I would just kind of watch, like, okay, what's he do? How does he do this? What does he, you know, what, it's just your demeanor. How do you, you know, all, all the little things like that. So I was secretly kind of like stalking you for a while there. <laughs> and then, uh, and then obviously I got to know you and you, you were always, you know, just 
incredibly helpful and, uh, you know, very friendly and it, it definitely helped me a lot. So, you know, to hear you talk about how, you know, people kind of went out of their way to help you when you were starting to learn soccer, you know, I, I just want you to know that I, all these years later, I still appreciate that you kind of went out of your way to help me learn how to be less of a dope, like in the press box and in the locker room and stuff. Cause I was able to kind of either, either kind of study you from afar, or as I got to know you, you know, you were always very forthcoming with advice and, and, uh, and just very friendly and supportive and stuff like that. So I, I just want to throw that out there before we let you go that I, that I really appreciate that from all those years ago. Well, appreciate it. Thank you very much. And I will say this, um, even though we do have safe distancing, distancing, uh, if we didn't have that, I would have my restraining order against you for your stalking. <laughs> That's Craig Murs, original beat writer for Columbus Crew ASC. And as you can imagine, we have only shared a few stories from one season. So we look forward to having having Craig part of the show a little bit more often. And meanwhile, we will uh, pack it up for this week and talk to you again soon. This is Dwight and Cirque talking black and gold. Have a good day.